there has been amazing change in the last hundred years. Am I right? I mean, before the automobile, how did people get around? Horseback, walking. Just in a matter of a few decades, the automobile comes along and changes the way people have traveled for thousands of years. That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, thank you. I mean, let's make this a group effort, shall we? I'm going to need some help today. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. Uh, ABC, NBC, CBS. ABC started broadcasting in 1948. Anybody remember that glorious day in television history? (laughs) That was 21 years before I was born. But... I know I'm going to as long as I'm young, man, because <laughs> I know it happens. <laughs> it just sneaks up on you. ABC, NBC, CBS came along and they started broadcasting on television. 1948, huge development in human communication and technology. And today, NBC, ABC, CBS have websites on the Internet, which was created by Al Gore, I learned. And... Thank you. I appreciate the laughter. And those three major networks receive 10 million visitors a day. That sounds like a lot, right? However, Facebook, YouTube, and MySpace receive 250 million visitors a day. And they have only existed for the last six years. The world is changing. In fact, there are, there are one million videos uploaded to YouTube every month. There's more content on YouTube than there is on all of the years ABC, NBC, CBS have been broadcasting since 1948. The world is changing, is it? I mean... If Facebook was an island somewhere where all the people that have a page on Facebook got together and lived together someplace, created a country, a government, it would be the fourth largest nation in the world. Just the amount of people that are on Facebook. The world is changing, isn't it? Isn't it? How do we farm nowadays? With a draft team? With GPS? <laughs> wow. Global satellite positioning, something or other. I don't know what it stands for. You know where you're at on the, far- on the farm within what? A couple feet? A couple inches. We should go back to the old days, shouldn't we? <laughs> In fact, a couple years ago, uh, on Main Street, Ray Days, there was a, uh, a parade. And this theme was, remember when? Do you remember that one? Anybody remember that one? And it was an exciting parade because Lynn's Farms had their potato harvester thing. I don't even know what it's called. (laughs) Driving down Main Street. But in front of it, they had their old harvester. And they had a sign that said, remember when? And then on the big monstrosity, it said, I remember when, but I ain't going back. (laughs) 
You see, we have this notion, I have this notion, you probably have this notion that change is something that we resist. Change is something we don't like. But I want you to just for a moment, think about change in a different way. How many of you went to school when you were kindergarten age? Anyone? No? Lots of folks didn't. Was there a lot of homeschooling going on around here? Uh, how many of you graduated from elementary school, completed elementary school? Anyone out there? Okay, a few more hands. How about junior high? Anybody complete junior high? How about high school? How many of you couldn't wait for high school to be over when you were in high school? I mean, I was in that boat. I was a band geek. It was not fun being in the average American high school as a kid who was into music. It just was difficult at my school. That and I got good grades and... Chicks just didn't dig that for whatever reason. And it was difficult finding my way through in high school, and I couldn't wait for high school to be over. How many of you, after high school was over, left the town you were in and went to school someplace? Or left the town you were in and went into the military? Or left the town you were in and went into a, a, a job or an opportunity or a business? How many of you married somebody? How many of you have thought about murdering somebody? <laughs> How many of you had children? How many of you had children leave? How many of you were glad when they left? <laughs> How many of you can't wait till they leave? <laughs> These are all changes, aren't they? These are all changes. How many of you have received a promotion or a new job ever, ever in your life? Not in the last week or anything. How many of you have bought a new car, new truck? These are all changes. And many of them, if not most of them, you volunteered for. I mean, did anybody have a shotgun wedding? You had no choice. Anybody? Anyone? Anybody not going to admit it? I've officiated one shotgun marriage. There was, and, I, and she's here today, so the shotgun was at the altar. Kind of interesting. Um, we choose these changes, and we gladly do it. I mean, think of the change that happens in marriage. Guys, come on, get your heads examined, right? I mean... I'm just kidding. I love marriage and stuff, but it's hard. All of a sudden, you can't do whatever you wanted to do. That's why my brother can't get married. Because he wants to do whatever he wants to do. And he looks at me and he's like, man, your life is awesome. And I look at him and I go, man, you have no idea. And we both envy each other's stage in life in different ways because I look at what he does and I'm like, I'd love to be a park ranger. I'd love to go fishing whenever I want. It'd be really fun to go skiing. I'd love to go to Europe if I could. I would go to Africa whenever I want. That's what my brother does. And, and for him to get married is enormous change, but he wants to get married. I wanted to get married. I want to stay married. And being married was a change I decided to take on. And in that change, I signed up for something. It was called a covenant relationship with my wife, between my wife and God. 
And I said some really broad vows. Anybody heard those vows lately? In sickness and in health. Yeah, that pretty much covers the human body. (laughs) For richer or for poorer. That pretty much covers the human checking account situation. For better, and and in case we haven't covered everything, for better or for worse. (laughs) What on earth were we signing up for? That's huge change. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about. If you're about to get married, listen up. (laughs) But this is a change we gladly, we joyfully entered into, isn't it? And then, (laughs) children. What on earth were we thinking, people? I mean, they're cute and all. But they should show up with a job or an instruction manual or a big old thousand dollar check, something. But instead, no, it's bills and crying and diapers and wiping and eating. And how many of you would put up with a boss who called you twice in the night crying, spit up on your brand new clothes that you always wore to work? I mean, none of us would put up with a boss like that. But yet this is a change that we gladly, we excitedly, we joyfully embrace. Is it not? That's a huge change, gang. Change, gang. (laughs) That was weird. That's an enormous change and you didn't resist it. You gladly entered into it. Some of you even took enormous steps to have children. Some of you even adopted kids. The lengths we went to, to have that change enter into our lives. We resist change. I argue we don't resist all change. We gladly embrace some change. But we resist other change, don't we? Now, you can imagine we're a church, so this is probably going to be about some of those changes we resist, right? There are enormous changes in our physical, our spiritual, our emotional life we resist. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? I'm going to change this year. (laughs) I've been making New Year's resolutions. It's already the end of the New Year's resolution in January, right? I mean, change is hard. Some changes we resist because... Barbecue is delicious and exercise is no fun. I mean, some changes we just go, my knees hurt after I do that. I am going to sleep in. Some changes we resist because we can't get our emotions in gear with the change. The only time my emotions get in gear with the change is when it's time to go to the swimming pool. (laughs) It's like, oh, I should have changed. Anybody been there? I mean, there's some changes that you cannot change fast enough. But you resist it all along and you make choices contrary to the change you want to see happen. We all do this. Why? 
And there's spiritual changes that we need to make too, aren't there? I mean, just this morning I was talking about the need for confession, the need to repent, the need to tell God we're wrong, we messed up, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And did you know that there are people out there that don't want to do that? There are people in here perhaps that don't want to do that. I mean, why can't God just be a senile old grandfather that at the end of the day just goes, hey, did you have a good day? Why can't God be like that? Why does God have to like be intelligent and smart and keep track of things and know what we're doing? Why does God have to be just and righteous? Why can't he just be loving and nice? And there's some changes in our spiritual life that we ignore and we resist, aren't there? And there's changes that we need to make. Now, I don't know how this is going to all come together because I'm still making this up as I go. But there's a story in Numbers that I came across as I've been reading the Old Testament. And I love this story. I want to share it with you today because I, somehow these are connected and maybe God will show up and help us with this, okay? Let's see if he shows up. Numbers 13 is the story of when the Israelites, they're camped outside of the promised land. If that's a new term to you and you haven't been around church world much, that just means it's the land that was promised to them. <laughs> Don't you love how relevant I make this? The Israelites were told by God, hey, I will give you land. Go and possess it. Now, before they went into the land, God told them to send in some spies. That's a good idea, right? Go see if the land's good. Go see where the strongholds are. Go find... Because they didn't have drone aircraft back then. Okay? They didn't have satellites. They had to do it on foot. And so the spies, there was one from each tribe of Israel. How many tribes were there? Twelve. Sent a spy into the land. And they go into the land and they walk around the land. And how long are they in the land? They're in the land for 40 days. That's a long spy mission. They're snooping around. They're seeing where the strongholds are. They're seeing what people live where. They're seeing how big they are. And if they got good weapons or if they're, you know, Stone Age or sticks that they'll throw at them. I mean, they're trying to figure out, can we take them? You know, guys, whenever you choose somebody at school when you're growing up, you didn't choose somebody you knew you couldn't take, right? I mean, you size them up. Can't we take them? And you'd be like, I choose you, you know? And then you like, the guy's like, eh, I don't think, but eh, I'm sorry. I don't, that's, God didn't tell me to say any of that. But <laughs> the Israelites are trying to figure out, should we choose these people? Should we go and take them? And they send in spies. And listen to what happens in verse 26 of Numbers 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron, which were the leaders of Israel at this time, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. Don't worry, I don't know where that is. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. So they collected stuff. Hey, look, check this out. It's a good land. They say, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, which, by the way, that's really, really weird to say that. What they're basically saying is, this is good land, good farmland. There are vineyards. I mean, if we run these people off these vineyards, they're ready to go. There are excellent uh, flocks, 
cattle, herds. And if we run the people off, that can all be ours. There are awesome fortified cities. And if we drive all the people out of them, we can take those for ourselves. In fact, that's part of the promise that God said. If you will obey me and do what I tell you to do, you can go into the land. You can, have, you can farm crops that you didn't plant. You can harvest from vines you didn't plant and you didn't tend to. You can possess homes and fortified cities that you didn't build. And they come back and they say, it's all true. It's all there. Look. Look at the fruit we brought back. Here's its fruit. But then the report gets a little twisted. Verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. The Amalekites live in the Negev. (gasps) Not the Amalekites. I mean, like, they shuddered. They were scared. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. A hush falls over the crowd. Oh, yeah. It's a good land, but we're going to have to fight for it. It's a good land, but they're powerful people wanting to keep us out of the land. Now, Caleb senses what's going on. He silences the people before Moses and said, (laughs) this is awesome. We should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. It's like Mel Gibson from Braveheart, right? It's like Russell Crowe from Gladiator. You got to have that guy, don't you? We may die today, but we're going to die fighting. You know, you got to have that guy. Every army needs that guy. Every church needs that guy or gal. But the men who had gone up with him said, the other spies, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. I mean, Caleb, you saw, duh, what are you thinking? Put down your stick and your stone. What are you going to run up and call them names? Hey, you Amalekite dogs. Blah. I mean, what are you going to do? We're not powerful enough. This is not going to happen. We can't take them. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. <laughs> well, the fruit, fruit wasn't that good. Grapes were itty bitty grapes. Uh, maybe we should settle in the wilderness. Now, I'm going to summarize what happens next because uh, it gets ugly. The people start grumbling. Go figure, right? People never do that. The people start grumbling, and God hears them grumbling. They say, why did we come out here? Let's choose a new leader to take us back to Egypt. We were better off as slaves. And so there's this grumbling that rises up to God, and God hears it because he's everywhere all the time. And he comes down to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, and his glory is shown before the whole assembly of Israel. And he says, how long do I have to put up with you people? Isn't that great? Because there's times you wonder with God, right? It's like you wonder what he'd say. He comes down and he says, how long? Haven't I been patient enough? I 
split a sea for y'all. I've been sending free food every morning and every evening. When you didn't like manna, I sent quail. Your clothes, which should have worn out months ago, are still fine. There's no holes in them. There's your sandals, which have, should have been ruined by now, are fine. There's no holes in them. I've provided every need. Whenever you were thirsty, I told this guy, Moses, hey, go hit a rock. See what happens. Water comes springing forward. Don't you think, gang, that I can help you with this, says God? He's a tad bit exasperated at this point. And he even is so angry that he says, Moses, I'm going to kill them all and I'm going to start over with you. It's a good thing that Moses didn't share God's feelings at that moment. Because Moses says, God, your name's at stake. You brought them out of, out of Egypt. You brought them to this place. You have promised this land to them. Don't kill them and start over. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. Forgive them, Father. God says, okay, I forgive the people. In verse 14, we often think God forgives us and everything just goes on great. Yeah, hey, I'm forgiven. No big deal. If you think that, and if I've ever made you think that, then you and I are wrong. Because in verse 20 of chapter 14, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, I've forgiven them. I've forgiven them. I'm not going to kill them. They can move on with their lives. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and he does, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, and it does, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them. Do you think he's trying to emphasize something here? Not one of them. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Scholars estimate that there was one to two million Israelites at this point. The reason they estimate that is because the beginning of the book of Numbers, they counted them. They counted all of the fighting men. And there were found to be 600,000 fighting men. Now, if there's 600,000 fighting men, there's probably 600,000 fighting women. And if there's 600,000 fighting women... It's a good chance all of those folks have 2.5 children and a dog. It's a lot of folks walking around in the wilderness. Scholars estimate that 2 million people are in the wilderness. And 2 million people say to God, no, thank you. And Joshua and Caleb are one in a million. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that go into the land. It's interesting. 40 years go by. You see, if you don't want to do what God's going to do, you can just, he'll wait. 
He'll wait you out. He's God all day. Alpha, omega, beginning, the end. I mean, he's kind of got you whooped on that. He can wait you out. He waited out the Israelites. He said 40 years. And so they wandered around for 40 years. And every day they're having another funeral. Another funeral. Another funeral. Another funeral. Another funeral. Finally got to the point where nobody who's crossed through the, the sea finally got to the point they're all dead. And God says, it's time. Caleb was 80 years old. Do you know what Caleb had to say? Let's get it on. <laughs> Caleb said, I am as strong today as I was when I was 40. And I will take my men and we will take the hill country. He said, let me go fight the Amalekites. Let me go fight the hardest folks there are. <laughs> I don't think he's like, hey, let's go get them. I mean, I think he's, <laughs> this is a bad dude. He hurt me. He has faith in God. He is one in a million. The Israelites didn't like change. The Israelites said, you know, I can eat manna and quail. It's okay. Walking around, desert, there's water. My needs are met. I'm comfortable. I mean, forget this promised land stuff, God. That's scary. To do that. They resisted change. God honored their resistance. Isn't that interesting? Bible scholars always sit around and they go, Can God's will be thwarted? I'm like, read this story in numbers. It can at least be delayed. You and I can delay God's will. You and I can thwart God for a season. But if he wants to do something, he'll find the one in a million. He'll find the Caleb's. He'll find the Joshua's. Guess what happened with Caleb and Joshua? They got to see God's promise fulfilled. They got to go and possess the land. Even Moses didn't get to go. Here's where I'm going with this thing. There's a lot of stories about God's promises and God fulfilling his promises and God, 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 do this, bless me, bless me, keep me, help me, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure the Israelites prayed all that. But there's a time when God calls us to action. There's a time when God says, change your ways. There's a time when God says, rise up the time to take the land, to get this done, to go forward is now. And there's always the opportunity for us to say, no, I'm scared. No, I'm comfortable. No, thank you. And God will wait. He'll beat us all. Waiting is his game. Waiting is what God does best. 
You see, our church is at an interesting time, and we're going to wrap this up in a bit and transition to a business meeting. Ugh, business meeting, right? But it's going to be a fun business meeting. It's going to be like a movie. You need to stay here for this. Because our church is going through immense amounts of change and growth. And many of you are going through immense amounts of change and growth. Some of you have just crossed the line of faith for the very first time. And that is so exciting to me. And that's the most important decision you've ever made in your life. And the church and Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And that must continue. Because there are people out there that don't know Christ. Right? And if I wasn't choked up and passionate about it, then somebody shoot me and get me off this stage and find somebody who will be passionate and sad about it. There are people who don't know Christ and they must come to know Christ. That's why we raised $21,000 to send Jared and Marnie and Kathy. It probably wasn't that much. Lots of money to send them to India. Because people in India need to know Christ. That's why we support missionaries like the Wisdoms and Deb Prentice and cowboy ministries that are ministering to cowboys and rodeo guys and, you know, those tough dudes, right, amongst us. Because they need to know Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Not the U.S. government. Am I right? Not the state government. Not the city government. Nothing else is the hope of the world. Not the banking industry. Not the car manufacturers. Not the computer guys. No scientist. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Do you believe it? What are we going to do about it? See, our church has this opportunity right now. And... I am hanging on for dear life because God knows I'm too stupid to know what to do. (laughs) And it amazes me every day. I wake up and I'm like, all right, I'm having lots of fun, but I am clueless, God. Please, once again, show up. Because honestly, this growth that we've experienced, the people coming has been super exciting, but a tad overwhelming. Because it's overrunning our sanctuary. Go downstairs some morning and see the overrun that's going on down there with the little people. I mean, it's pandemonium down there. I mean, it's bad enough when there's only five, but throw in 25. And two freaked out moms or volunteers or... (laughs) It gets ugly fast, gang. And we're overrun. And people are walking several blocks to get here. Right? Right? What on earth are you guys thinking? Why? Because Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And we have a huge opportunity. And I have no idea what God is calling us to, but I know he is calling us to something. I don't know what the next step looks like. I wish I could say, take the land. I have no idea what it looks like. Maybe it's two services. Maybe it's going out and purchasing something. Maybe it's going to another facility. I have no clue what it looks like. All options are on the table. But one thing I'm certain of is we must be faithful to what God is doing here. Now, we have an option. We can say no. 
And God will respect that. He always does. Start in Numbers 13. And he won't destroy any of you, okay? So don't sweat that part of it. He probably won't even get terribly, terribly angry. I don't know. He's pretty long-suffering, patient. He's kind. But it's probably like how I feel when my kids resist a golden opportunity. I don't get mad at them, and I don't beat them around. (laughs) Sometimes they need that, but... I just go, oh, man, you missed it. Oh, the chance you had. The chance you had. I want to live my life so that heaven's a different place. I want to live my life so that people who don't like the church like this church. I want to live my life so that people who are nothing like Jesus don't look at him, don't look like him at all, like Jesus. I don't know how that works. I want to be a church that stands up for folks when they least expect it and least deserve it. I want to be a church that if God says, Go, do, be. Then we go do be. Could be a song. Every church has one of those guys. Every church has one of those guys. The Mel Gibson that yells, let's go. And gang, you can go talk to my former employers. I have never been that guy. (laughs) Until now. And it's a weird place to be. But I do know one thing for certain. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. It's a scripture I memorized in high school. It was true then, and it's still true today. If we listen to fear, we are not listening to the Spirit of God. So, grab your squirt guns. We're charging the gates of hell. Okay? We don't know how. We don't know where. We'll probably need more and bigger guns. But we'll figure it out with God's help. Let us pray. This will serve too as the benediction, okay? So why don't you stand? Heavenly Father, you exist. You are real. There's no doubt in my mind. And we thank you that for whatever reason, you don't need to use us. You definitely don't need to use me. (laughs) There are tons better folks out there than me. For whatever reason, you have invited all of us into this great adventure. Help us to follow you. And if we can't find our way forward, then it means we've gotten too far from you and we've got to catch up. Help us to follow you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace because we're going to need it. Because he's going to start asking for much more out of us. Amen.